This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive Magazine, The Bugle, a 2000 interview from The Oprah Winfrey Show, activism from The Unfuck It Up Project, The Majority Report, and a speech by Barack Obama. A moral titan, a hero for the ages, one of the greatest men of our time is dead tonight. Nelson Mandela passing away today at the age of 95. Shortly after his death, South African President Jacob Zuma addressed the nation. Fellow South Africans, our beloved Nelson Holishasla Mandela, the founding president of our democratic nation, has departed. Our nation has lost its greatest son. Our people have lost a father. South Africa and the world in mourning at this moment. World leaders expressing their condolences. President Obama addressed us earlier this evening. He achieved more than could be expected of any man. And today he's gone home. And we've lost one of the most influential, courageous, and profoundly good human beings that any of us will share time with on this earth. I am one of the countless millions who drew inspiration from Nelson Mandela's life. My very first political action, the first thing I ever did that involved an issue or a policy or politics was a protest against apartheid. I would study his words and his writings the day he was released from prison gave me a sense of what human beings can do when they're guided by their hopes and not by their fears. Mandela was born in 1918 in Eastern Cape Province, South Africa, one of 13 children in a family of a fairly high status clan. He would go on to become a lawyer after an incredibly rare education in a white supremacist nation that was explicitly ordered in every single particularity around the subjugation, oppression, alienation and degradation of the black majority of its people. Mandela co-founded the Youth League of the African National Congress, a group dedicated to equal rights and overthrowing the system of apartheid, or apartness in Afrikaans, the racial segregation upon which the Republic of South Africa had been founded. For this activity, the apartheid government, armed with a vast secret police, branded Mandela an enemy of the state. Mandela was forced into hiding. In a stunning 1961 broadcast, his first televised interview, the 42-year-old activist in hiding spoke with ITN's Brian Whitlake. I asked him what it was that the African really wanted. The Africans require, want the franchise on the basis of one man, one vote. They want political independence. Do you see Africans being able to develop in this country without the European being pushed out? We have made it very clear in our policy that uh, South Africa is a country, country of many races. There is room for all the various races in this country. Mandela emerged from hiding and would be tried along with eight others for treason, a capital crime. All but one were convicted. Mandela was sent to Robben Island Prison, where he spent the first 18 years of his 27-year imprisonment. 
During those 27 years, the African National Congress, in concert with a glowing global movement, increased the pressure on the apartheid regime, turning it into an international pariah. And under tremendous, persistent, largely nonviolent domestic resistance and international sanction, in 1990, after 27 years in a cell, Nelson Mandela was released. Four years later, the voters of South Africa, black and white, would go to the polls in the first democratic election in that country and elect Mandela their president with 62% of the national vote. Mandela set about to do what at the time seemed an impossible task, stitching together these two people, one oppressed, degraded for years, the other now a minority and fearing they would be completely disempowered. The new republic would be dominated by vengeance and recrimination. In his inaugural speech, Mandela stressed, it would not be that way. Enter into a covenant that we shall build a society in which all South Africans, both black and white, will be able to walk tall without any fear in their hearts, assured of their inalienable right to human dignity, a rainbow nation at peace with itself and the world. Mandela would peacefully transfer power after a single five-year term and live to become a wise, older statesman, the founder of a new nation, and the living embodiment of its best values and highest aspirations. Nelson Mandela was a living legend. You don't get to live with a lot of legends while you've got your short time on earth here. I wasn't around when Martin Luther King was alive. I wasn't around when FDR was alive. Uh, and uh, Nelson Mandela was our legend. And uh, he passed today. He was 95 years old. Uh, he's got a Nobel Peace Prize from 1993. Obviously brought South Africa out of apartheid and into a democracy. Uh, enough good things cannot be said of him, but what I wanted to do was give you a little bit of background and so that you begin to understand why the man was such a legend. First of all, uh, back in, uh, in 1952, and I did not know this until today, he had set up the first black law firm in South Africa. So little details that give you insight into his character. It was Mandela and Tambo. In 1956, he was accused of treason. He stood trial, was acquitted. In 1961, later he uh, led this what they called the Spear of the Nation, which was uh, the militant faction of the African National Congress, which he had led and started up. So now the South African government went after him for that, and they wound up giving him a life sentence. Now a lot of people judge him for that. I remember Rush Limbaugh once did a segment saying. Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. No, he didn't say that back in the 1960s, of course. He said it after Nelson Mandela had liberated South Africa and had done it entirely peacefully and had made sure to protect the minority in South Africa, which of course were whites. But nonetheless, uh, of course, some in the right wing have never forgiven him for that. And the reality is the entirety of his career showed just about as well as anyone has ever shown in human history that you can accomplish amazing things through peace not through violence 
Now, what happened after he went to prison? Well, he went to prison for 27 years. 18 of those he served on Robben Island, where he worked at a quarry doing hard labor, so literally breaking rocks, for 18 years. And they would keep a timer on him as well as all of the other uh, prisoners. And if they went to the bathroom for too long or they dared to rest too long, they would get in trouble. And any time a prisoner got in trouble, where did they go? They went to Nelson Mandela, who would always represent them. So no matter what kind of a tough spot he himself was in, he never bent on his principles and was there for everyone else. And everyone clamored to sit with him at lunch to get his guidance and his counsel. Do you know that in his prison cell, there was no bread whatsoever? He had to sleep for 18 years on a cold, hard floor. There was no bathroom. He had to go into a bucket. Picture him on that cold floor with a bucket in the corner. Well, he did get visitors once a year for 30 minutes. Every six months, he'd get to send a letter. Now, every once in a while, you hear a current day leader, whether it's in this country or another, say, things are too hard, we can't get that done. It's not possible, you can't do that. Then think of Nelson Mandela in that prison cell, bearing that for 18 years, bearing the imprisonment for 27 years. And I'm positive that in that 27 years, many, many people told him, hey, you're crazy, this can't get done. You wanna talk about an iron will? And when he came out, he, of course, he was elected the first democratically elected president of South Africa. And what did he do? He went on to not only do the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force, where they did not punish uh, the former apartheid regime. They just got to the truth so that the country could heal. They did not act out of vengeance. All the great leaders, Abraham Lincoln, said we should not punish uh, the South after the Civil War. FDR said we should not punish the Germans and the Japanese after World War II. Forgiving, healing. Martin Luther King talked about how you can't lead out of the darkness with more darkness. You could only lead out of it with more light. And that's exactly what Nelson Mandela, Mandela did in his lifetime. Of course, Gandhi, another great example of that. One other thing about when he was in prison, do you know that in 1985, President uh, P.W. Botha said to Nelson Mandela, I will let you out of prison. You just have to agree to conduct yourself uh, as we tell you through nonviolence, etc. Now, Nelson Mandela was already on the path of nonviolence at that point, uh, but they wanted him to sign a bunch of things. He could have been let out of that terrible, terrible imprisonment that he had been save- serving for decades. Here's what his response was What freedom am I being offered while the organization of the people remains banned? Only free men can negotiate. A prisoner cannot enter into contracts. And he stayed. Who among today's leaders would have that kind of courage? To stay in that awful, awful prison. So anytime somebody tells you something can't be done, think about Nelson Mandela on that cold, hard floor and how they told him it couldn't be done. Does anybody else have that kind of willpower to stay in prison for 27 years to get it done? And then to be so grand that when you come out, you're not bitter about it. And you say the first thing you do is say, hey, we're going to protect everyone's here. Everyone's rights. Because I didn't fight for a black South Africa. I fought for all of South Africa. In fact, one of the reasons he became famous is because during his trial, he said this.
During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Now, luckily for all of us, he did not die at that point. He lived a long life to the age of 95. And even after he got out of office, what did he do? He worked towards children's causes, fought AIDS in South Africa, which claimed his son, and fought so many different fights to make sure justice was served, not just in South Africa, but throughout the world. Truly a leader for the ages. And I was honored to be on the same planet as him for however long we were together. And now he's left us, and it is a great void, a void that probably cannot be filled. A living legend has passed. This is the kind of pass that you had to carry. It had your fingerprints on it and your photo and who you worked for and where you lived and where you were allowed to go and when you were allowed to go there and for how long and for what purpose. Starting in 1950, with the Population Registration Act, everybody in South Africa had to register with the government by race. A racial review board, essentially, would, would give you a look, decide what race they would say that you were, and they would give you a racial ID card so you would know which laws applied to you and what you were allowed to do. But as of 1952, every black person in the country over the age of 16 had to have not just a racial ID card like everyone else, but also this passbook, which any white person could demand to see at any time. And if you were found to be in a place that was not just reserved for black people, if your passbook did not explain that you had explicit permission to be there as a non-white person, then it was illegal for you to be there, and you could be arrested just for existing. Just not having your passbook on you at all times was also grounds to be arrested and thrown in jail. The pass laws meant that by virtue of being black in South Africa, you were presumed to be a criminal unless you could prove otherwise by having the proper paperwork. And any white person could challenge you anywhere for any reason. And if you did not have the passbook, if you did not have the right documents, if you didn't have the right written permission to be where you were when you were there, then you could be put in jail. Passbook laws had been around on and off in South Africa since the 18th century. And this, the structure was always the same. White people never needed them. White people could go wherever they wanted. But non-white people needed, essentially, a permission slip, an internal passport. Papers, please. 
Passbook laws of various kinds were not new, but at the end of World War II, the election in South Africa in 1948 unexpectedly brought to power a nationalist government that had run explicitly on a platform that they called apartness. The word apartness in their language was pronounced apartheid. And so when the so-called National Party came to power in 1948, they started codifying immediately all the various ways that they could separate the population by race and treat people according to the ways that they thought the various races should be treated. In 1949, the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, which banned people of different races from getting married to each other. Whether or not you got married, the Immorality Act of 1950 made sexual relations between people of different races a criminal act. Also in 1950, the Population Registration Act, which made everybody in the country register by race and receive an official racial classification. Black, white, Indian, or colored. Those were the four categories, and then there were a million subcategories beneath those. Uh, I should say, not beneath white, of course. White was just white. But for everybody else, it could be a little complicated, depending on what your review board thought of you. Also in 1950, the Group Areas Act, which geographically partitioned the country along racial lines. That one formed the basis for the state forcibly relocating people within the country by race. In 1953, the Reservation of Separate Amenities Act, so that's 1953, that's the year before the U.S. Supreme Court declared that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. The year before we said separate but equal was dead, South Africa codified it explicitly for their nation. The apartness, the apartheid system of separate schools, separate hospitals, separate beaches, separate buses, separate park benches, separate everything. Everything assigned to specific races. And the lion's share of everything, and of course the best of everything, reserved only for the white minority. Black people had no right to vote. People classified as colored, uh, for a while they had a right to vote specifically for white people to represent them. But eventually that was stripped too. Only the white minority had the vote in the end. Only the white minority was represented in government and only the white minority had any say whatsoever in the affairs of the nation. 80% of the country lived entirely segregated and without representation under white rule. 80% of the country. And by 1960, the resistance to apartheid, the demonstrations against it, had started to zero in on those passbooks, those pass laws, the papers please laws, which made your mere existence criminal if you were challenged by a white person as to what you were doing there. In 1960, when different resistance movements were competing with each other about tactics and about strategy, about the best way to try to overthrow apartheid, just outside Johannesburg, in a black township called Sharpville, Somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 people turned up at the local police station in Sharpville and said they wanted to turn themselves in. These thousands of people, they turned up and they said they all felt that they needed to be arrested. They all wanted to be arrested, all 5,000 of them, because they said they did not have their passbooks, and so they were turning themselves in for arrest. That act of protest was greeted by the local police with live ammunition. They shot into the crowd. They wounded over 150 people, including many women and children. In the end, the police massacre at Sharpville killed 69 people. At the time, Nelson Mandela was in his early 40s. He had joined the African National Congress, the ANC, way back in 1944. 
The ANC and the other major organizations opposing apartheid in South Africa had been organized as nonviolent movements, nonviolent resistance and nonviolent organizing. But after Sharpeville, they decided that maybe that wasn't enough. After Sharpeville, the ANC decided that it would form a paramilitary wing. And Nelson Mandela was one of the ANC leaders who went underground to help start it. They said that they would target government buildings and strategic infrastructure, and they would try to sabotage the state. After Sharpeville, the government of South Africa started mass arrests of ANC leaders and other activists. They banned the ANC. They made it illegal to be a member of that group. Nelson Mandela was arrested for treason in 1961, but he was acquitted. He was arrested again in 1962, and this time convicted, convicted of traveling illegally. They sentenced him to five years hard labor on South Africa's version of Alcatraz, which of course is Robben Island. While he was already serving that sentence, while he was already in prison, they put him on trial again, this time for sabotage. And they convicted him, and they sentenced him to life in prison, to life on Robben Island. And so in 1964, he began a new sentence that was a life sentence. And for the first 18 years of it, his cell on Robben Island had no bed, no plumbing of any kind. He was permitted one letter every six months. He was permitted one visitor per year for 30 minutes. He became a symbol worldwide of the fight to stop apartheid. The South African government would not allow a picture to be taken of him in prison for decades. And so the image, the free Nelson Mandela image, was always him as a young man in his 40s, as he had been when he had been locked away, even as he aged decade after decade in prison. He served 27 years in prison, 18 of them at hard labor in that island cell before South Africa was finally ready to give up apartness, to give up apartheid. And when F.W. de Klerk was elected president of South Africa in 1989, it was essentially to relent, to finally at least start to give up the arcane and brutal racial system that South Africa invented, it's hard to remember, but really invented after World War II, after Hitler and that they fought for for 50 years against the people that they subjugated with that system. F.W. de Klerk was elected in 1989. He then legalized the ANC. He unbanned the organization. And in February of 1990, he visited then 71-year-old Nelson Mandela, still imprisoned 27 years later, and he told him that he was going to set him free the next morning. And on February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela emerged. I now present to you the great leader who has been in jail for 25, 27 years. Amanda in Africa. Nelson Mandela speaks after 27 years. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant of you, the people.
After 27 years in prison, when Nelson Mandela was released, he led the negotiations for the ANC for the end of apartheid. And apartheid was dismantled. And on the 27th of April in 1994, Nelson Mandela was elected the new president of South Africa in the first election ever held in that country where all adult citizens were welcome to vote regardless of race. Millions of people waited in line to vote in voting that took three days. And April 27th is now a national holiday in South Africa. It's called Freedom Day. And when it came time to sign the new constitution for South Africa, which eliminated all vestiges of law by race, President Nelson Mandela went to Sharpeville to sign the Constitution. Today, at the age of 95, Nelson Mandela died at home in South Africa, at his home in Johannesburg. His family says it was his wish to be buried in the town where he was born. The news about Nelson Mandela hit me hard. Mandela was a hero of mine since college. When I was active in the anti-apartheid movement, I used to wear a button on my lumber jacket with his face on it and the slogan, Freedom for the People of South Africa. I vividly remember watching on TV as he walked out of prison on February 11, 1990. He emerged in suit and tie with clenched fist in the air and said, Amandla, power. Back then, June Jordan, the defiant poet and essayist, wrote a column for the progressive about how exhilarating it was to see Mandela free at last. In her piece, Mandela in the Kingdom Come, she wrote, I'm crying because I'm overwhelmed by victory. I tasted tears of victory that day, too. I've had a poster of Nelson Mandela hanging in my office for the past 15 years or so. He's smiling broadly, and he's surrounded by jubilant South African school children. He also has his fist in the air, as do the kids. This mix of empowerment and of joyousness typified the Mandela persona, and that's how I'll always remember him. He wasn't perfect. As Naomi Klein has written in her Indispensable Shock Doctrine, he allowed the IMF in Washington to curtail his dreams of economic justice for the poor majority of South Africans. But as a symbol of resistance and resoluteness and courage and forgiveness, he was part Muhammad Ali, part Aung San Suu Kyi, and part Abraham Lincoln. And we won't see his likes again. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. time now and well this will be slightly tricky uh seeing as this is a podcast that has proven itself to be 
relatively immune from sincerity over the years. <laughs> but uh, I think we can probably all agree Nelson Mandela was an incredible human being. I remember watching him get released um, on TV. I was 12, standing in my parents' kitchen as he walked out of jail. I remember the small things that led up to that moment. I remember it being important that we didn't buy bananas from South Africa during apartheid. To always look for a South African sticker in the supermarket on a banana and then put the banana back down if you saw one. I remember his face on T-shirts at free Mandela concerts on t t TV. I remember growing up knowing in the abstract that this was a better human being than most other human beings. But it wasn't until I went to South Africa in 2010 that I got a sense of exactly what impact his life has had on every single human being in that country. We were there shooting some pieces for The Daily Show about the World Cup, and uh, we did a piece about race relations, which involved me asking people in the streets in Johannesburg how it was that white people were still alive in South Africa, <laughs> how it was that they were not hated. And every single person, literally 100% of the around 50 people that I spoke to on the street, said a variation of this... Well, we couldn't hate because Madiba told us not to. He didn't hate anyone, and if he didn't hate after everything that he'd been through, then how could I? This was an unbelievable human being. He sacrificed everything, physically and personally, for his country. If it wasn't for him, there may not even be a South Africa today. When people pass away, it's often said that they're not gone, that their memory and impact lives on. Let's be honest, a significant amount of time, that is complete bullshit, Andy. <laughs> Nelson Mandela, though, perhaps more than anyone else that we get to share the earth with in our lifetimes, will never be forgotten. He was, to put it in an inappropriately profane way, f***ing amazing. <laughs> and uh, obviously very, very popular all around the world, and particularly in America. So popular, in fact, that he was removed from the US government's terror watch list, John, in which year? Which year is a little quiz for you. Oh, well, it was probably almost immediately, Andy. I want to say, I mean, we're going decades back, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you might think... Right, Andy? What, well, you might think, why was he on right? that list in the first... Maybe it's a trick question. Maybe he was never on the terror watch list. That's right. It was a typo, so that, that's why it came <laughs> off so quickly. In fact, it was in 2008 uh, that he was finally removed from the US government's uh, terror watch list. Right. The, the bugle, of course, began in yeah. 2007. I'm not saying we were directly responsible, but you can draw your own conclusions. But 2008, that is just the 18 years after he was released from jail, 14 years after he became president of South Africa, nine years after mm -hmm. he stopped being president of South Africa, and four years after he largely withdrew from public life due to failing health. So why finally in 2008? Well, that was the year that he turned 90, John, and America clearly yeah. finally thought, oh, he's probably okay now. Best keep an eye on him. In fact, he seems to be popular not, not just in America, but all around the world. Let's keep an eye on everyone in America and the entire planet. One, two, three, mega snoop. So basically, <laughs> Mandela is responsible for all the... Uh, all the snooping scandals we've seen of uh, recent years. That's his true legacy to the world. <laughs> uh, he was put on the, um, uh, the terror list, uh, terror watch list, um, uh, by President Reagan, whilst he was uh, in uh, a fairly high-security jail uh, on an island, um, with apartheid in full swing, which does suggest that Reagan was not only barking up the wrong tree, but he was also barking at the wrong cat.
We are honored to be talking with Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, whose unshakable courage, his faith and integrity have inspired millions to see what is possible in their own lives. I've had the pleasure, the honor of meeting Mr. Mandela on a couple of occasions before. And I will tell you, to be in his presence is really, to be in your presence is like being in the presence of royalty and grace at the same time. I would think, I wonder, how does a man spend 27 years in prison, put there by an oppressor, and come out of that experience with not a heart of stone, not a cold heart, but a heart that is willing to forgive and embrace. I remember talking to you uh, one night over dinner and you had said to me that our hatred for the oppressor was so intense, we did not see the value of talking to him. So at what point did you see the value of letting go of the hatred and begin the process of talking? Well, let me say first, that is a great tragedy to spend the best of your lives in prison. But although it looks ionical, there are advantages in that. If I had not been to prison, I, have not, I would not have been able to achieve the most difficult uh, task in life, and that is changing yourself. Mm. I would not have that opportunity. I had that opportunity because in prison, you have what we don't have in our work outside prison. The opportunity to sit down and think, which is an important part. Well, I had said that you're one of the most humble, well, the most humble person I'd ever met. I will tell you that when Mr. Mandela arrived today, he uh, said that our producer met with him in the room and he said, what is the subject of today's show? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, <laughs> and she said, Nelson Mandela, you are the subject of today's show. He goes, oh, all right. So, so you are not even, not, not modest, but uh, a very humble man. I wanted to ask, because I think that is the, the characteristic that stands out for you above all of them, that you are a peacemaker inside yourself. And how do we begin, those of us who aren't leading countries, but are just leading our own lives, leading our families, come to a sense of truth and reconciliation with ourselves to be a peacemaker? How do you do that? The first thing is to be honest with yourself. You can never have an impact on society if you have not changed yourself. And one of the most important weapons in changing yourself is to recognize that peace, uh, I mean, people everywhere in the world want peace. But humility is one of the most important qualities which you must have. Because if you are humble, if you make people realize that uh, you are no threat to them, then people will embrace you. They will listen to you. You'd also said to me uh, one evening, you said, we made the brain dominate the blood. No, that's true. 
because we had that conflict. Our emotion said mm -hmm. the white minority is an enemy. We must never talk to them. But our brain said, if you don't talk to this man, your country will go up in flames. And for many years to come, this country will be engulfed in rivers of blood. So we had to reconcile that conflict. And uh, our talking to the enemy was the result of the domination of the brain of our emotions. Okay, I'm still trying to understand though. You began the peace talk and you end up coming out of prison and there is no bitterness. How is there no bitterness? Well, I hated oppression. And when I think about the past, the type of things they did, I feel angry. But again, that is my feeling. The brain always dominates says, as I have pointed out, you have a limited time to stay on earth. You must try and use that period for the purpose of transforming your country into what you desire it to be, to a democratic, non-racial, non-sexist country. And that was a great task. And therefore, you had to reject all negative features in your own soul, in your blood system, and focus your attention on the positive things. Well, Joanna, she runs a country. She runs in Durban and the Tehran's fun. She makes a few of her people happy. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activist director Katie Klebusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Now, lest you think that Nelson Mandela's death and before that his retirement from public life signaled the full realization of the missions to which he dedicated a better part of a century, I'm afraid I must disabuse you. Peace, integration, and equality are not easily or quickly accomplished, even under the leadership of a man whose accomplishments and vision have been partly recounted in this episode. Mandela's life and activism have been packaged into a small, digestible box by the international community. If you aren't aware of his capacity for strategy, diplomacy, and pragmatism, take this opportunity to learn his public stances on women's rights, which drew protesters to the memorial services, the poor of all backgrounds, and true respect for citizens of the world, which has the Westboro Baptist Church reportedly booking tickets to Johannesburg. The Nelson Mandela Foundation and its two linked organizations, the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund and the Mandela Rhodes Foundation, are continuing the work of their founder. Visit nelsonmandela.org to participate in the Dialogue for Justice, find inspiration and tools for your own social justice activism, and connect to the history of the fight for true equality. I follow him today. By faith, 
we're watching the right now dealing with Mandela's legacy. Uh, and um, it is amazing how these guys trip all over themselves to seem even-handed and fair and still either say something astonishingly stupid or astonishingly mendacious. And fortunately for you, we have both in one clip. Here is Bill O'Reilly bringing the mendacity and Rick Santorum bringing the stupidity. Here it is. And let me give you an example. Ideology has to really leave the building next year and in 2016, or you're going to have President Hillary Clinton. Nelson Mandela just died. Uh, I don't know whether yeah. you're aware, but 95 I years was. old. Yeah. Nelson Mandela, I, I, I spent some time in South Africa. He was a communist, this man. Yeah. He was a communist, all right? But he was a great man. What he did for his people was stunning. Positive. Now... I uh, don't want to. I'm sure uh, Bill O'Reilly has spent some time in South Africa, at uh, maybe even at a nice resort. Apparently, there they didn't have any books or newspapers or internet where he could look up and realize that Nelson Mandela was not only not a communist. Uh, early on in his career, he was uh, quite adamant about keeping the communists out of any coalition, as well as Indians. Um, in his struggle. Uh, but um, even when he was um, uh, the head of the ANC, um, he was not a communist. But continue. Sacrifices that he made. He could have repudiated it and got out of that prison. He wouldn't do it. He was a great man. But he was a communist. So, But I would never attack Nelson Mandela. I mean, I told Bishop Tutu I disagree with you and with Mr. Mandela because Tutu is that way as well. But I respect you. So why can't you guys in the Republican Party bring that to the fore? Well, Nelson Mandela now, I'm not clear what that to the fore is, um, but I think what Bill O'Reilly is saying, I'm trying to reposition myself based upon the memo we got to make it sound like we're not a, an apparatus of the Republican Party. So what do you say? I'll let you have the last word, Rick Santorum. ...up against a great injustice and, and was willing to pay a, a huge price for that. And that's the reason he's, he's, he's mourned today, because of that, of that struggle that he, he, he performed. But, but you're right. I mean, what he was advocating for was, was not necessarily the, the right answer, but he was fighting against some, some great injustice. And, and I would make the argument that you know, we have a great injustice going on right now in this country with, uh, with, with an ever-increasing size of government that is taking over and controlling people's lives. And Obamacare is front and center in that. And, and I There you have it, folks. Obamacare is like apartheid. Obamacare is like the repression, literal repression, the, uh, of the majority of Americans. Americans under Obamacare, uh, a vast majority of them, uh, can't eat in the same restaurants, must live in slums, uh, can't have access to the natural resources of their country, cannot uh, have an equal vote, cannot have... I mean, that's what Obamacare is for Rick Santorum 
because he's so, so stupid. Yeah, you want to do uh, Mandela? It was like it was like in Santorum's mind, Mandela comes out and he's like, "Of all of the injustices in the world, that could remind me of the struggle against apartheid, the delivery of healthcare <laughs> through a private market mechanism. None could face the same level of injustice and tyranny that Americans face by having an inconvenient website." <laughs> So that they are covered in a catastrophic situation. You should fight this. Now, I want to know, when's Rick Santorum going to go into prison for 27 years to fight this? <laughs> Unbelievable. The names, Santorum, Gingrich, and other heroes of the struggle... <laughs> Against the slightly expanded Medicaid, <laughs> you will go down in the in history along with Oliver Tambo, Walter Sinsolo, and other great comrades who have fought like evil injustice. <laughs> How demented are these people? So it's, demented. It's so much better than if they could just say Mandela was a communist. Screw him. Oh, I mean, it, like my God. One day after the death of South Africa's anti-apartheid leader and founding father, tributes and remembrances are rolling in from leaders from all over the world and across the ideological spectrum. From Russian President Vladimir Putin, who praised Mandela's commitment to the ideals of humanism and justice, to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who called him one of the outstanding figures of our time, to Iran's President Hassan Rouhani, who praised Mandela's firm belief in the freedom and equality of all humans. And pretty much every world leader in between, in the U.S., the same thing is happening. Emotional eulogies have been pouring in from left, right, and center, from Bill Clinton to both Presidents Bush, from Susan Rice to Condoleezza Rice. Everyone is celebrating the life and mourning the loss of Nelson Mandela. Even arguably the most conservative member of the United States Senate today, Ted Cruz, released a heartfelt statement saying in part, quote, Nelson Mandela will live in history as an inspiration for defenders of liberty around the globe because of his epic fight against injustice, an entire nation is now free. But Senator Cruz also posted that statement to his Facebook page, and that is where the illusion of the bipartisan, universally accepted respect and regard for Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement evaporated. The comment thread that follows Ted Cruz's respectful eulogy is not pretty. It's just teeming with stuff like this. Go home, Ted, you're drunk. He was a communist terrorist who targeted people for no other reason than being white. Stunned to see you support this scumbag, Mr. Cruz. Mandela was a murderer and a terrorist, not to mention a communist. He was also a huge supporter of abortion. Don't put him up too high. Careful, Mr. Cruz. My personal favorite, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, and FDR are also dead. They don't deserve a positive eulogy either. For an outsider unfamiliar with the recent history of American conservatism and its record on race and apartheid, this open racism and contempt for an internationally revered figure like Nelson Mandela might be surprising. But that comment thread is just the capstone on a very long, 
luckily, dwindling tradition. Think Progress is out with a handy guide today detailing much of the conservative canon on South Africa, like in the 1960s when Nelson Mandela was sentenced to life in prison and the National Review opined, quote, the South African courts have sentenced a batch of admitted terrorists to life in the penitentiary and you would think the court had just finished barbecuing St. Joan to hear the howls from the liberal press. In the 1970s, the Wall Street Journal argued against sanctioning the apartheid South African government on economic grounds. In the 1980s, the late Jerry Falwell urged his supporters to write their congressmen and senators to tell them to oppose sanctions against the apartheid regime, telling them, quote, sanctions against South Africa will hurt the blacks much more than the government or anyone else. In the 90s, as Nelson Mandela prepared to visit the U.S., the Heritage Foundation warned Americans they, quote, have reasons to be skeptical of him, arguing that, quote, Nelson Mandela is not a freedom fighter. But it hasn't just been pundits and commentators and conservative magazines and think tanks. The modern conservative movement's most sainted hero, Ronald Reagan, took that right-wing view of apartheid and anti-apartheid and made it American government policy. He did it even as outrage over the crimes of apartheid grew around the world and here in the U.S. In South Africa, the black township of Soweto exploded in violence again today. There was violence by blacks protesting a ban on funerals for people killed by police last week, and there was violence by police enforcing the government order. As many as six people were reported killed today, but there was no way to confirm that number. South African government censorship limited the details of this report now by NBC's Mike Betcher. Before daybreak, in the box houses of Soweto, vigils were held for the dead from last week's violence. Parents, relatives, and friends jammed into rooms where they prayed for the dead of each house and waited for the mass funeral that police had forbidden. At least 20 of the dead had been shot by police. In that context, in a world that knew that that's what it was like to live under apartheid rule, Ronald Reagan resisted a push by Congress to join Europe and the rest of the world, taking concrete action to pressure South Africa to end apartheid and release Nelson Mandela from prison. Today's speech was supposed to head off congressional demands for sanctions, but the effect may have been exactly the opposite. Because the president gave no ground on South Africa, dismissing the growing call for sanctions as an act of folly. If Congress imposes sanctions, it would destroy America's flexibility, discard our diplomatic leverage, and deepen the crisis. We must stay and work, not cut and run. The speech was carefully balanced. The president condemning repression by the white government but also terrorism by blacks. With his plan to name a black ambassador now on hold, Mr. Reagan was left proposing reforms to South Africa, a timetable for ending apartheid, release of political prisoners, including Nelson Mandela, and negotiations with black groups, including the African National Congress. The president stressed all South Africans must work out their future together. As one African leader remarked recently, Southern Africa is like a zebra. If the white parts are injured, the black parts will die too. And Reagan did have some allies in Congress. By intruding into the affairs of the South African government, we are shooting the farmers of America in the foot. And I will have no part of it. In the end, for all of Ronald Reagan's charisma and persuasive ability, for all his sway over congressional Republicans, both houses of Congress voted to impose the sanctions. And even after Reagan vetoed the measure, both the House and Senate went back and voted to override his veto. And it wasn't just the usual suspects fighting Reagan on this. The Senate was controlled at the time by Republicans. This was an open revolt from his own party. We are against tyranny. 
and tyranny is in South Africa. And we must be vigorous in that fight. Today's vote is today's generation saying no to the incipient Holocaust of our times. 31 Senate Republicans voted to override Reagan's veto. Among them is fresh-faced young senator from Kentucky. Well, I think it's now time to, uh, to put the law on the books. I think it's now time to put a law on the books, even if we have to do it over the president's veto. There are, I think, two lessons here. What is morally obvious in retrospect is not necessarily more morally obvious at the time, at least not to everyone. There are people right now who will be caught on the wrong side of history on something we are debating at this moment. There's also this. People can be persuaded. There is such thing as moral evolution. If reading Ted Cruz's Facebook comment thread makes you despair for humanity, think about how remarkable it is that Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz, wrote that statement in the first place, given his place in the conservative movement and the conservative movement's place on this issue just 10 or 20 years ago. As history is being rewritten before our very eyes, please let me make a point or two about Nelson Mandela before he is forever altered beyond recognition. First of all, he wasn't Martin Luther King or Gandhi. He was a fighter. He wasn't a pacifist. He believed in armed struggle after he saw that peaceful resistance to apartheid was leading nowhere. And you can argue all you want that economic sanctions and labor strikes brought down apartheid, but the role of armed resistance can't be whisked under the rug. And that's a problem for me, too because I lean in the pacifist direction. Mandela was also an anti-imperialist. He denounced U.S. interventions abroad, most recently in Iraq. And yes, he was friendly to Fidel and Raul Castro. It was Cuba that crucially came to the aid of the freedom movements in Southern Africa. It certainly wasn't the U.S., which for decades lent diplomatic and economic and even military support to the apartheid government. It's been almost laughable to see U.S. officials cozying up to the corpse of Mandela when they themselves did nothing for him. And for anyone to suggest, as Mary Matlin has, that Dick Cheney somehow appreciated Mandela is a really bad joke, since Cheney was calling Mandela a terrorist almost to the day he became president of South Africa. Mandela, the freedom fighter, posed a problem for the U.S. government, which for the longest time was on the wrong side of this historic struggle. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it.
people of every race and every walk of life, the world thanks you for sharing Nelson Mandela with us. His struggle was your struggle. His triumph was your triumph. Your dignity and your hope found expression in his life and your freedom, your democracy, is his cherished legacy. It is hard to eulogize any man, to capture in words not just the facts and the dates that make a life, but the essential truth of a person, their private joys and sorrows, the quiet moments and unique qualities that illuminate someone's soul. How much harder to do so for a giant of history who moved a nation toward justice and in the process moved billions around the world. Madiba disciplined his anger and channeled his desire to fight into organization and platforms and strategies for action so men and women could stand up for their God-given dignity. Moreover, he accepted the consequences of his actions, knowing that standing up to powerful interests and injustice carries a price. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I cherish the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Mandela taught us the power of action, but he also taught us the power of ideas, the importance of reason and arguments, the need to study not only those who you agree with, but also those who you don't agree with. He understood that ideas cannot be contained by prison walls or extinguished by a sniper's bullet. He turned his trial into an indictment of apartheid because of his eloquence and his passion, but also because of his training as an advocate. He used decades of prison to sharpen his arguments, but also to spread his thirst for knowledge to others in the movement. And he learned the language and the customs of his oppressors so that one day he might better convey to them how their own freedom depend upon his. And so we too must act on behalf of justice. We too must act on behalf of peace. There are too many people who happily embrace Madiba's legacy of racial reconciliation, but passionately resist even modest reforms that would challenge chronic poverty and growing inequality. There are too many leaders who claim solidarity with Madiba's struggle for freedom, 
but do not tolerate dissent from their own people. And there are too many of us, too many of us on the sidelines, comfortable in complacency or cynicism, when our voices must be heard. The questions we face today, how to promote equality and justice, how to uphold freedom and human rights, how to end conflict and sectarian war, these things do not have easy answers. But there were no easy answers in front of that child born in World War I. Nelson Mandela reminds us that it always seems impossible until it is done. South Africa shows that is true. South Africa shows we can change. That we can choose a world defined not by our differences, but by our common hopes. We can choose a world defined not by conflict, but by peace and justice and opportunity. And when the night grows dark, when injustice weighs heavy on our hearts, when our best laid plans seem beyond our reach, let us think of Madiba and the words that brought him comfort within the four walls of his cell. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishment, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What a magnificent soul it was. We will miss him deeply. May God bless the memory of Nelson Mandela. May God bless the people of South Africa. Mike and I just listened to your LGBT um, broadcast and, and really liked it. It was great. Um, I, I have a couple comments about some of the maybe the attitudes or some of the language used by you know some of the commentators in the clips that you used. Um, Fifteen years ago, I was uh, I guess not in favor of gay marriage. That's just where I stood. I have evolved in you know dozens of ways. I'm I'm basically the most liberal person I know right now in many ways. Um, I'm in Washington State. I was, I campaigned for gay marriage. Um, I was one of the leaders in that movement. I, I hate to use this phrase, but some of my best friends are gay married. But you know, it's true, and, and that's where I'm at. It doesn't, it doesn't seem weird to me, or immoral, or unnatural, or wrong, or anything like that. It's just the way it is, and um, I'm excited about the changes um, across this country. Equality for all. So then we, uh, you know, then I started thinking about this transgender thing, and I listened to your your uh, podcast, and you know what? It's, I just don't get it yet. I haven't even really thought about it for longer than maybe the last six months. So I, I'm just not there yet. And you know, the thing is, I know I'm going to be there. I know I'm going to get it. I know I'm going to be an advocate. 
but I'm just not understanding it yet. It's it still seems I, I just almost hate to use this word, but it seems just too weird right now to me. But that's just how I feel today. That's how I feel this week, this 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 month. Um, it's going to change. I, I'm going to I'm going to get my head around it. I'm going to be able to understand it and feel comfortable with it. But it's but I'm not there yet. It's new for me. And when I hear some of the folks um, some in, uh, in your clips. You know, talking about, you know, I guess people like me, you know, as ignorant and probably uh, repressing some homosexual desires and, um, you know, mean-spirited and just uh, bigoted. I, it just, there's just something about it. I just, I guess I just want to say, do you think that's going to change anyone's mind? I mean, people that are more entrenched against this than I am. You know, like I said, I know I'm going to get there, and it offends me to hear that kind of language. It makes me want to run the other way. But somebody who, um, you know, really does have a problem with it and is, is, is um, you know, more entrenched and more of a conservative uh, viewpoint, when they're called names and um, insulted like that, it doesn't make them change their mind. It actually makes them go the other way. Um, it, 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 it actually causes them to be more entrenched. In what they believe, so I, I just wanted to throw that out that there there might be a better way to talk about issues like this with maybe a little more understanding and um, empathy for people that just aren't there yet. I guess that's all I wanted to say. Hey, thanks again. Great show. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So the show's going long today. I'm going to let it run long uh, to make room for this conversation. I, I, I want to con- continue the conversation on, on trans issues, but unfortunately, we're only going to make baby steps uh, of progress today. But I, I want to start by responding to Mike from Washington. I thought it was a really interesting, nuanced uh, call, and, and I agree with essentially everything that he said, but uh, I know that there is a fire that I need to put out before it even has a chance to get started because I have been in this exact situation myself before. Um, now, now, first of all, I don't know what clips or what, you know, what was said in the trans show recently that he is referring to. Uh, but we can take him at his word that he heard things that you know, were either offensive or dismissive of, of people like him who, you know, are, are coming along but aren't totally there yet on, on trans issues. And that's fine. You know, we, we don't have to know the specifics. We can talk about it as a general issue. And uh, so, like I said, I, I've been here before. And so I, I think I know how to clarify it, uh, and, and I can illustrate uh, with this story that two years ago, there was a discussion on race relations, ra- you know, an oppression uh, around race on the show, and I was I was sounding very much like Mike. Not not that you know, hey, I'm not there yet. I don't understand uh, race issues, but I, I was saying, look, like there's more for me to learn. I, I there's more I need to know, and I'm I'm open to it. And I don't know what had been said, but I guess something had probably been said that either went over my head or or I don't know what. And my response was to sort of ask, you know, could could you talk in a way that I can you know better relate to, uh, you know, in a way that I will be more receptive to because it's something sort of at my level. And uh, and and so. I can't quote this, but I, can, I think I can represent it fairly faithfully. Uh, you know, what was said by Elka from Indiana who called in in response to that. 
and said, look, Jay, you know, basically he said something like, look, Jay, you know, I really like that you want to learn about this. Um, Elka is black herself, calls in on, on race relations issues a lot. Um, so she said, look, I'm glad you want to learn, but it is not my job to teach you. It's your job to go out and learn for yourself. And I am certainly not going to, you know, change how I talk to, to fit your needs. That that's not my job. And I agreed with everything she was saying. And it just clarified for me that I needed to make a giant clarification of what I was saying. And this is the same clarification that Mike from Washington, who we just heard from needs to make on the transgender issue. And this is the fire I need to put out before it starts is I said, oh, okay, there is a gigantic if in that statement I made, or there should have been a giant if. And what that is, is if you decide that you want to take the time to try to educate people, then there is a good way and a bad way to do it. And the good way, no matter what you are teaching, if you are teaching, you know, arithmetic, it doesn't matter. You want to talk to people where they are so that you can bring them from where they are to where they need to go. If you, you know, if you talk to them, you know, if you, if you talk down to them, if you talk over their head, if you're, you know, dismissive of their ignorance and, and you're frustrated by the fact that they don't already know things, you're not going to make progress with that person. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have the right to be frustrated with people who don't know your issue. I mean, if you live with a, you know, whatever your personal issue is, you know, whether it be, you know, gender related, race related, it doesn't matter. If you, if you live with an issue every day and it affects you negatively every day and then you're constantly confronted with people who don't understand you, that's going to be frustrating. So if, if you have frustration, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to teach anyone anything. That, that is the key. It is no one's responsibility to teach anyone else about their own personal struggles, their own personal issue, regardless of what it is. And so that, that's why that if is so important. If you want to take the time uh, to teach me about the, you know, your issue, then please do it in a way that, you know, that I can be receptive to. And I think that's, that's what Mike was saying. And so I just wanted to hammer home that point. Uh, second point today, uh, I, I want to bring in Diana uh, to this conversation. Diana wrote in an email and, and made a couple of great points and Unfortunately, this is going to be disheartening. Uh, so you, you haven't really been able to tell yet from, from the messages that I've played, but almost all of the cisgender people, meaning non-trans people, people who, whose identity, uh, you know, gender identity matches their biology, essentially every one of those people who has called in to comment has said, you know, great episode on trans, you know, really enjoyed it, thought you did a great job. And on the other hand, I got about half a dozen messages from people identifying as trans people who all sounded very much uh, on a spectrum uh, from, uh, you know, basically, thanks for the show, but it had some serious problems, all the way up to, it had such serious problems, I really would have preferred you not played it, um, you know, because it, it, may have potentially done more damage than good. <laughs> so, so that was the, 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 the entire uh, spectrum from actual trans people themselves. Uh, all of them had a problem with it. 
And, uh, you know, of course, I didn't know ahead of time that they would have such problems with it. But now I'm learning that that's that's what happens. So, so to sort of illustrate this, this is what Diana had to say. Uh, she said, the episode really reminded me just how much farther we have to go when even the liberal media is so unfamiliar with the issues, I don't know how we proceed. I don't want to be one of those girls who's offended and makes a big deal about words, but language can be a sign of how in touch with an issue you are, and I feel it's important for all of us on the left to be on the same page when it comes to terms. And then she brings up this issue that literally... I'm, I'm going to say at least four people wrote in specifically uh, to talk about this exact issue. And it's going to sound like a tiny issue, but hear me out and it'll make sense by the end. Diana says, people might not even realize why, quote, transgender person is better than, quote, transgendered person with an ED at the end of transgender. It's important to remember that for the same reason we say people of color rather than colored person. It's an aspect of who we are rather than something that was done to us. So I totally get, as a super privileged cisgender person who's just learning about this myself, I totally get that the instinct is, oh my God, are you serious? That's such a small thing. Is that really what we have to care about? But you know, yes. And, it, you know, it's a small thing, but it's going to be really easy to fix once you understand that, you know, t just grammatically, it just makes sense grammatically. Transgendered person means that it is like something, you know, that, that they have been transgendered by some outside force, whereas transgender person is just, it's just who they are. It's just an aspect that they are a person and they are transgender as a descriptor. Um, so, you know, r rather than a verb basically. And, um, so it, it's, it's small, but it's important. And, uh, everyone who wrote in on that issue said, look, like it's indicative of the fact that people don't realize, you know, they, they, they don't have a deep understanding of this issue because a lot of people use the word transgendered. And personally, I would guess that 0% of them realized that there was even, something to be concerned about, uh, and had ne it had never crossed their mind ever. So I get that it is kind of dispiriting that there is this huge gap between, uh, you know, the cisgender people who thought the show was great and the transgender people who all pointed out the problems with it, which is only further exemplified by the fact that cisgender people thought that it was great. And what all of this means is that we just have a long ways to go and that the conversation needs to continue. So as always, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, please send in your comments 202-999-3991, or if you prefer to email, please feel free to do that. My email address is j, that's j-a-y, at bestoftheleft.com. But that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories and